0: Healthcare policy is complex, detailed, and often paints with a broad brush, leaving rural hospitals behind. The environment rural healthcare providers operate in is challenging as it is, so ineffective or destructive policy measures can make or break rural hospitals. So, how do we advocate for better public policy to support the work we do taking care of our patients, families, neighbors, and friends?
1: With fresh ideas, targeted advocacy efforts, and policy development that takes all healthcare providers into account.
0: I'm Rachel Lott.
1: And I'm J.J. Hodshire.
0: And this is Rural Health Rising.
1: Welcome to Episode 20 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital.
0: And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development.
1: So one of the most important areas of focus for us on this podcast is the environment which rural hospitals operate and how policy can directly and decisively hurt or help our ability to continue taking care of our communities for decades to come.
0: And today we're talking with someone I've known for many years now as we share the same alma mater, Baylor University down in Texas. But since then, he's been active in D.C. and Pennsylvania and has been right in the middle of healthcare policy throughout his career from the development side to the implementation.
1: Our guest today is Samuel Chen, Principal Director of The Little Group. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Sam.
2: President Hoshire, Rachel, thank you for the invitation. It's good to be with you both.
0: Sam, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at The Little Group?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, first things first, I, I realize you guys are in Hillsdale, Michigan, and you're right by Hillsdale College and, and just an hour or so from Ann Arbor. But I got to give a shout out to the Baylor Bears men's and women's basketball teams. Rachel, <laughs> yes. they are top of the world. Big 12 champions. We are coming from Michigan in March Madness. I'm sure you will hear from your viewers after this. So I apologize in advance. Yeah, uh, I've never even heard of them. Year. Where
1: Where is this team from?
0: <laughs> Waco, Texas, one oh, coach, yeah. Scott Drew, yeah, who guess. has been uh, – Scott Drew incredible. He's yeah. been steadily building that program for years, and he's the best. Oh, I guess
1: I'll see you up on the campus then. <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely. So a uh, big shout-out to the Baylor Bears. Uh, but, you no, know, Rachel, thank you for the question. And I, like you said, we went to school together. I mean it feels like forever ago now. But since then, I've had the privilege of working uh, with the front seat to our nation's democracy as a staffer in both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate – Eventually, on the campaign trail, or as we affectionately call it, uh, the dark side, and then <laughs> launched uh, we launched the little group, which is, we are a boutique strategy firm. We work on campaigns, public policy initiatives, and communications, and we really work on linking. Uh, the work that researchers do, whether at universities or at think tanks, and connecting that, turning those good ideas into working policies, and how do you communicate those. And so that's the majority of the work I do. When I'm not there, as you know, I I serve as host of a news journal called Face the Issues. and I also have the privilege of teaching at Northampton Community College up in my home state of Pennsylvania, um, which is just absolutely fantastic experience getting to work with students.
1: Sam, I'm excited for this interview today after hearing that background. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with the why. Now, we do this on every episode, so we and our listeners can get to know our guests just a little bit better. So, Sam, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning?
2: I love that question and because I think we live in a society— that has preached that we are defined by the things that we do and the people that we know, right? I mean, every time from time we're kids on up, it is who are you hanging out with? Who are you dating? Who are you marrying? Who your references are and what are you doing? What internships you have? So forth and so forth. And I think it's the other way around. I think our identity determines the significance of every relationship we have and the success of everything that we do. And so for me, it, it, it always comes back to my identity and, and that's driven by our passions. So for me, um, as a Christian, that is first and foremost for me. Everything I do, everything I am flows out of that. And uh, on my website, it says that, you know, for me, my life's journey has been about challenging minds and changing lives. And that comes directly out of my faith. God's given me a fantastic opportunity in the political world and in education and media um, to challenge the way we think and how we think. It doesn't mean that we're all going to agree. In fact, I I kind of hope we don't all agree, Uh, but I'm going to be better as a thinker because I've engaged with people I disagree with and hopefully can help make them better as well as we can constantly challenge ourselves in this journey for truth. Uh, But I think just as, as much as my faith dictates that I am a fierce pursuer of truth, it dictates that that truth has to impact my life. And so we're called to live by grace. And I hope as much as I challenge the way people think, uh, I'm also showing them that grace and loving them as they are, wherever they fall uh, on on the political spectrum or in any other classification that we might use. And so challenging minds, changing hearts, I am blessed to have the opportunity to do that. And that's what gets me up every morning.
1: Well, if that didn't light your fire, your wood's wet. For yeah, crying exactly. crying out loud, man.
0: I told you. I told you you were going to love this That's guy. That's <laughs>
1: fantastic. I tell you what, man after my own heart. Well, that is fantastic to hear what gets you up out of bed in the morning. And I can see the passion, and I can hear it in your voice. So, you know, Sam, we've talked about policy on this podcast many times before. Uh, we've had healthcare leaders. We've had congressional leaders, state and local leaders uh, to talk about the impact of healthcare care policy. Uh, but, you know, I'm excited to talk to you today and for our listeners to hear you because you come at this from a different perspective. Than we do. Uh, to start, uh, when you think of healthcare policy in America, particularly as it appears uh, for rural America, uh, what are the biggest problems with the policies we have in place today?
2: That's a great question, and, and it's a complicated question. I think, for starters, the, the divide within healthcare is different than a lot of different policy issues that we'll tackle. And so when we talk about economics, right, we, we have economic classes that we're talking about and different people that that middle class and different tax brackets, uh, things like that. When we talk about something like healthcare though, within the healthcare community and within the healthcare issue, there are divisions that often war with each other. And so, for example, we'll have uh, physician groups that will, on certain bills, stand opposite of uh, hospital healthcare associations, right? We'll have uh, in, in my home state of Pennsylvania, the nurse practitioner bill was not supported by every aspect of the healthcare industry. There are lobbies in the healthcare industry that are against it uh, for for whatever they have their own reasons, and then there are others that support it, uh, and so we see this healthcare is not a monolith. I think those of us who are not a part of it, we often treat it as a monolith, right? So, you know, if you, uh, you you meet a doctor for the first time, oh, my friend's a doctor, right? Oh, fantastic. (laughs) How many doctors are there in this country? But we tend to treat medicine as a monolith. Um, And yet when you look, when we look in DC or in, in, you know, any state capital, and you're looking at the different organizations that advocate, we have, healthcare and hospital associations, we have a rural healthcare association, we have doctors associations, we have nurse associations, nurse practitioner associations, Uh, and and it goes on and on and on because they have different interests. And so problem number one, we need to stop addressing healthcare as a monolithic issue. Um, There are different different divides within that industry and I think we can speak to all of them, but we have to do it individually. And then the second issue is we need to understand that this is this country is diverse and that diversity is our strength, which means inner city healthcare and rural healthcare are going to be very different. In fact, I could say that inner city healthcare in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is going to be very different than inner city healthcare in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, even though they're in the same state. All right. And so we gotta be, begin to understand those differences if we're gonna move forward on the issues. I think that's probably the number one issue that. Holds up good healthcare policy.
0: So that said, there has been it it seems like a very piecemeal approach over the years to rural healthcare and trying to fix or support or sustain rural healthcare, however you want to look at it. So there's these various designations and funding models that have been developed, like critical access hospitals, disproportionate share hospitals, and you know there's a laundry list of those. But we really haven't been able to move the needle on rural hospital closures since uh, 2010. We've had more than 130 Mm -hmm. rural hospitals that have closed. 2019 saw a record closure of 19 rural hospitals. And 2020 came close with 18. But that number likely would have been higher if it weren't for the CARES Act funding because there are some hospitals that would have closed by now, regardless of the pandemic, had they not had the support from the CARES Act. So... What do we do about all this from a policy perspective? Past approaches maybe have worked on a micro level for certain hospitals here and there, but in, on a macro level in terms of providing care and making sure that rural Americans have access to health care. It doesn't seem like what's been done so far is really working. So, so what do we look at now?
2: Rachel, I think you just hit on the head. It, we're chasing a, a symptom, right? So, I mean, to use medical terms, if you go see your doctor, uh, they can address your symptoms or they can address the root of your problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we we want to address the root of the problem and uh, what we've done traditionally with rural health care and, and with a lot of health care issues, but especially rural health care is we're chasing symptoms. So the financial situation that rural hospitals face is not the core of the problem. It's a symptom of a problem that's that is now being manifested by its closures and by financial financial stress. Uh, one of the things that we're not addressing in, in the rural health issue is rural living the fact that over the last two decades people are moving out of urban centers and into rural and even suburban centers that are serviced by rural hospitals that that that, that proportional growth is not being reflected in the healthcare and the growth of the the healthcare and the financial health of these these uh, rural hospitals, mm-hmm. and so you're adding more patient stress to already financially stressed hospital. Now we we can funnel more cash into it, but I'm not convinced that just dumping cash on rural hospitals is going to work. Just like I'm not convinced that dumping cash on schools is going to solve our education problem. We have to come and address the root. Now, listen, the fact that more and more people are moving to rural areas is not a bad thing but we have to build the infrastructure out to support it. And so I think when we think about public policy and we think specifically about rural healthcare, uh, we need to approach it from its foundational issues. So more people are moving out that way. We need to find a way to create a structure that will support that. Within that structure, we have to give rural hospitals the ability to do what they do best and not dictate to them what they need to do. You know, you look, I was reading the Michigan uh, hospital report for this last year, and it says here that... um, 164 member hospitals, uh, 52 are rural, 99 are urban, right? That should tell you something. And Michigan's got rural areas. Uh, th- that should tell you something, that that's probably going to be fairly proportionate in states that are like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. states like that. And so the louder voices are going to be urban hospitals. Listen, there's nothing wrong with urban hospitals. If you live in the urban area, you go to an urban hospital. Uh, there's nothing wrong with healthcare systems, But they're not reaching the rural areas. And so, but their voices are loud because they do have a network, they do have a system. Leaders on the public policy front, if we're going to address rural health care, we need to cut the urban hospitals out of the conversation because what works in Philadelphia is certainly not going to work in Hillsdale. And we got to start bringing people who are doing this day in and day out to the forefront, hear from them what the issues are that they face. This is something that we do in our firm on every policy issue. Get the experts in. Now, they don't speak the political language. They don't speak the legislative jargon. That's fine. That's what my team and I do. But we got to get the experts in, and we're not going to have a place to start. I think that's the starting place when we talk about policy for rural
1: health care. Excellent, excellent response. So uh, speaking of COVID-19, which Rachel hit on just a few minutes ago, um, you know, it's important to note that the pandemic uh, really demonstrated the importance of and the need for rural hospitals uh, in our country. Uh, we saw, you know, the quick action by rural hospitals to roll out vaccination clinics and to quickly, you know, ensure that the spread of COVID did not happen within their facilities. And, uh, you know, in our facility alone, you know, it was months and months, months uh, into the pandemic in which we had no transmission of COVID uh, in, by any of our patients or by any of our staff because we could contain it. And also access to health care is so critical, you know, in rural communities where transportation is a concern. You can't get to the doctor if you don't have a car. And if it's if if health care is an hour or two hours away, it limits your ability to receive the care that you need. But, you know, as that was happening and shaping uh, our country for rural health care because of COVID and our response to it, uh, at the same time, it was the nail in the coffin for a lot of small rural hospitals across the country. So how do you think? The pandemic will shape healthcare policy development moving forward, especially for rural hospitals. And uh, there's no doubt that this has changed the healthcare industry. We know that. Uh, and we can only imagine where it could go and the impact that it will have on future policy decisions as well. But could you comment on that for our listeners?
2: Yeah, I, my gut is is we'll have to kind of wait and see, but let me try to expand on that. You know, I think right now we are in, we are still, policy-wise, we are still in crisis mode when it comes to COVID-19 and healthcare. We have been since uh, March, February of 2020. Um, everything in uh, our, our policy base, especially in Washington, has been driven towards that last year. Um, appointments for, to different offices were put on hold because everything funneled toward talking about COVID-19. This year hasn't been much different. Uh, Besides the election issues and the impeachment trial, it has been hard focused on COVID-19. In fact, if you remember during the impeachment trial, President Biden asked them to delay the hearing so he could get nominations in place and start moving on the COVID-19 relief bill as opposed to being distracted by, by you know, this, this impeachment trial, whatever we think about the trial, you know, the idea was let's let's not lose focus on COVID-19. So we're still there a year into this, and we're still in crisis mode. We're still trying to solve a problem that's already occurred. It's going to take some time for policy to move past this, especially when it comes to political stuff. We Government is always a little bit slower than everyone else, uh, case in point. Um, they start agencies that still issue Blackberries as their smart device of choice.
1: And are so you serious? 100%, There's no way.
2: Blackberries are easier to encrypt. Oh my I did goodness. not know that. that is oh crazy. my gosh. Well, you are know, they, we
0: still use fax machines in healthcare, so we're one to talk. And pagers. And pagers. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs>
2: that's right. That's right. Pages. I forgot about this. Oh my goodness. Um, so it, it's going to be focused on that for a little bit, and when we first get out of it, the first thing they're going to address is. How do we prevent a crisis from happening again? But that still does not address the long-term health of rural hospitals or of any hospital system, right? I mean, that's only addressing how do we prevent another crisis like this or what do we do in, in hindsight of this crisis. So it's going to take, I think, a year or two at least before we begin to look retrospectively. That may not be a bad thing because it gives us an opportunity to evaluate it without the emotions of having just come through a pandemic. It gives us a chance to now look, take a step back and say, okay, when it's not raining, now let's inspect what caused the leak in the roof and what we have to do. My hope is that it shines a light on things like rural hospitals, but in a positive way. And so as you said, you know, it, for example, with rural hospitals and the fact that you didn't have a lot of of, um, you know, you were able to, restri- to restrain the, the COVID-19 situation, you rural hospitals are in a place to assist with the rest of the healthcare system, right? We kind of box ourselves up and say, okay, well, this hospital is full and that hospital is not. Th- there's an opportunity for rural hospitals to be of assistance if we all work together and we kind of got past those divides within the healthcare system. Uh, I think about, you know, the idea that, you um, we uh, you you see people say this in Texas and Pennsylvania everywhere they say certain hospitals are full right and other hospitals are not I was just talking to the CEO of a healthcare system and he said look heart attack numbers are down stroke numbers are down we know for a fact people are did not stop having heart attacks and strokes because of uh, of COVID nineteen right, right right but they're not coming in anymore they're afraid now what if we could work together healthcare systems and rural hospitals and we, we were able to provide that care for those who needed it. So there are avenues I think that we can shine a light on the work that rural hospitals do. And we can also begin to see how they're being cheated out of the system, right? My fear of rural healthcare becomes, it goes the way of, of the VA. And the VA is struggling with this right now. Where veterans, we, we have to pass a bill to mm-hmm. allow veterans to see primary care physicians nearby for non-disability Sand. related issues. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're going to make a veteran drive an hour to see a primary care physician. Something that's not related to their disability. This becomes the, the the fear that rural hospitals go the same route. We have an opportunity now to stop that before it goes that route. But not just stop it. Bring them to the table with the full healthcare discussion. How do rural hospitals and urban hospitals and healthcare networks work together? Right. I think healthcare and hospital associations are are, are attempting to try to bridge this. Uh, But the challenge, of course, is not allowing one sector of the healthcare industry to do all the talking. Everybody needs to have that voice at the table. Uh, I have high hopes for where it can go. The question is going to be whether or not these organizations like Hillsdale Hospital, like rural hospitals, are able to get that voice at the table. And if they are, I think we can make great strides in healthcare by everyone finding their role. Doing it well and supporting others in their role. Uh, we, you know, we have all of our conversations tend to be very large with healthcare in DC, Medicare for all, affordable care, things like that. I think we can solve a lot of the problems if we just look at what we do have right now and just making sure everyone's in the right place with the right support from each other and from their government.
0: So now you're in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania signed into law, I believe it was toward the end of 2019 the Pennsylvania Rural Health Model, which is a global budget model for rural hospitals. And I actually spoke um, on the phone a while back to Senator Lisa Baker, who was a state senator who sponsored that bill, and talked to her about it a little bit. Um, and, you know, it was implemented right there before COVID. So it kind of messes with your pilot period and that kind of thing. But what can you tell us about this type of health care policy? It's it's a difference in payment model, and and a lot of different payment models are starting to be explored around the country.
2: Uh, well, Senator Baker is a fantastic senator, a fantastic person. Her and her family are just wonderful people. So I'm glad, Rachel, that you got to connect with her. And yes, the the Pennsylvania rural health model um, it, it's focused on uh, something that they call a global a global budget. Right. So healthcare. I don't have to explain this to you guys, but healthcare works. It is a fee for service with insurance so somebody comes in they're going to get a procedure the hospital's going to build the insurance company the insurance company may say okay we're not going to allow you to bill that much and then they knock down the cost a little bit then they pay a certain amount then there's the copay and all that stuff the global budget idea would be to move it more toward like a an income right so the difference between you have an hourly wage versus you have an annual salary and the global budget would shift this model toward an annual salary model, where in Pennsylvania, the way they've done it is those hospitals that are in the system, that are part of this pilot program, they each get assessed individually, which is why I like about this program. This is not a, oh, let's just put all the rural hospitals in the same boat. They get assessed individually, and there are projections that are made about what kind of health care or what, what benchmarks we expect this hospital to hit over the course of this next year. And that evaluation takes place year after year. Now that evaluation projection thing is nothing new in the insurance industry. Uh, when we look at health insurance plans and they're deciding what the premiums and now the pockets and the co-pays and the co-insurances are, they are doing this every year. They're projecting what they believe that the patients on that plan are gonna use that year, right? It's a bit of a risk assessment. So it's the same idea, but they're now doing it on the hospital side as opposed to on the individual patient side. So they're going to do it on the hospital side. They come to agreement, and then that cost, that amount that they agree to for the year is paid out bi weekly or every bi monthly. So every two weeks, I can never tell if the buy is twice a week or every two weeks. <laughs> it's um, so confusing; it makes it no is, sense. <laughs> so this is twenty six annual payments, <laughs> once every other week, um, and that that comes in just like a paycheck would. Once you know every two, if you're paid every two weeks, this is the same idea. It's like a paycheck for the hospital. The idea is that it creates more of a stability moving forward for the hospital. As you know, when we're fee-for-service, just like if you're in a job and you're commission-based and you have busy months, you don't get to just burn through that cash because you've got a plan for your dry months. And hospitals are in that same kind of situation. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of, of healthcare situations coming in, a lot of patients coming in. You have more money. You don't just get to burn through it. You have to plan and financially be responsible for months that might be a little bit drier. The idea is to create more stability. And so every month, you know what's coming in. It allows you to budget easier. They're also hoping it gives hospitals uh, a little bit, it's able to cut back a little bit on their costs, and it's able to give them opportunity to expand primary care opportunities to be able to meet their patients more where they are. And so the hope is that the stability will lead to some innovation. If we're not worrying about the financial side of it, we can focus a little bit more on the medical innovation side. The hope is to kind of, like I said earlier, allow doctors and hospitals to do what they do best. So let's not worry about the accounting side as much. Let's worry a little bit more about the medical innovation side. I think what has yet to be seen about it is that there is still, it's not that once you have this. A, a annual budget kind of thing or, or this global health budget that you can su- suddenly dismiss your accounting department' uh, right. like yeah you know, I've worked as a financial advisor for years and in the outside of the political stuff and I always tell clients in the financial world you know it, it's easier to budget when you have a salary that comes in that there's a stability to it. But if that means it's easier to budget. That doesn't mean you don't budget. Right. Right? You still, there are still things that you still have to, to take account for because if you've got a, a crisis that comes in, and there's an extra busy month, you're not billing for that extra busy month. You have a set amount. And so you need to budget correctly so that in those busy months, the budget money that you've gotten for that month and for the months before is going to be enough to cover it, right? So it's just a different direction of budgeting. And so it certainly does not mean that we just, we've solved all the financial issues, It's one potential avenue to allow hospitals to have a little bit of financial stability and shift some of their attention towards medical innovation. It's kind of a wait and see game. Uh, we're just, like you said, it, it kind of got disrupted with COVID-19. Obviously, the other issue with COVID-19 being hospitals had to gear up. And that's a lot of upfront cost that mm-hmm. kind of disrupts this model a little bit. Rural hospitals get hit harder with the gear up because they're also buying the equipment, uh, but they're not necessarily getting the income the way that a, a larger healthcare system would. Or the volume and discount. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's, there's some, uh, I'm not sure these last year or two is going to be a great tell on how the system works, uh, but hopefully moving forward, we get a little bit clearer of a picture. I certainly don't think this will be the end all be all solution. Uh, but it may be a piece of the puzzle to provide a little bit more stability to allow rural hospitals to go and do what they do best.
1: Well, Sam, you and I are going to talk in a few weeks, and we're going to talk about Hillsdale and what you can uh, help me with as a president and chief executive officer. And um, But unfortunately for today, believe it or not, our time has come to a close. And uh, I have one last question for you. You know, we have CEOs and hospital leaders from across America that will be listening to this podcast, and we'll be boosting it. So we want to give them an opportunity to hear directly from you. So as someone who does a fair amount of advocacy work uh, right now, and you've been right now involved in a political uh, climate that we've never seen in our history— that I've never been involved with. And I'm young. You look young. Uh, And I've never in my career, though, have ever seen the tensions and the flare-ups. And so as a a CEO, you know, what advice would you give us today if I want to get involved for my hospital in advocacy work and in policy for example, in Michigan, we have some legislation regarding CRNAs and their ability to practice independently apart from the direct supervision of an anesthesiologist, and so it has created, you know, a lot of controversy, a lot of questions. But for a rural CEO, for any CEO that listens to this, you know, what can they do to get involved and to have their voices heard?
2: That's a fantastic question so you know thank you for asking that and and this is honestly this is crazy as it sounds this was debated, not rural hospitals, but this idea was debated all the way back at our founding and James Madison writes extensively in Federalist 10 and Federalist 51 in the famed Federalist papers. About what do we do with minority groups and groups that are just not part of the majority? And rural groups, by nature, are in that. Um, simply, I mean, even you think just the, just population wise, if you're out in a rural area or a large agricultural area, you need land. Which means you, you don't have a, a high density population, and so by nature you are going to be in a in the minority vote. I always tell my students, if we allow the high density population areas to determine what happens to our farmers, you know none of us are going to have food for much longer. And so Ma- James Madison says this is this is why we need the majority. There cannot be what he calls a tyranny of the majority, right? And there needs to be minority voices at the table. And what he recommends is, is special interest. And special interest today has a dirty kind of connotation to it, oh, you're a special interest group. But what really it is, is these voices coming together and speaking as one. I think back almost a little over 10 years ago, after the 2008 economic collapse, the Congress passed something called Regulation Z, or just called it Reg Z and it required banks to have a waiting period before they turned over loans. This would slow banks down from turning bad loans because it would require a period of which we could check the loan, check the the uh, applicants records and so forth. This is great when you're targeting large banks that were turning bad loans like your Wells Fargo's, your Bank of America's and so forth. But what they didn't do was carve out an exception for community banks. Community banks that are just in your local area, and that is their bread and butter because they know the people they're writing the loans to. They, they they're their neighbors, and the fact that they can turn it around quickly to help small businesses and to help the community is what how they get their business. We limited them under these new regulations, and as the the president of one of those banks told me, he said, "Well, at that point, why not go to a Wells Fargo or Bank of America? Because if you move." You can't bank with us, but you can bank with them, and we're all right. under the same regulations. This this was, just, no one out there was trying to mess up, mess with our local banks. No one out there said, how do we stick it to the, the community bank? This was a group of members of Congress that were trying to do the right thing, but because there was nobody at the table who was from a community bank, they didn't know what they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And that's the same problem when it comes to rural healthcare. If nobody's at that table, that understands rural healthcare, understands the challenges and understands the great things that hospitals like yours can do, then you're going to be overlooked. It's not because anyone out there is trying to shut down rural hospitals, but because we don't know what we don't know. And the best way to have that voice is to come together. What they did throughout the state of Pennsylvania that was actually throughout the country was they started connecting community banks. We started, get, I was working the House of Representative at the time, but we started getting letters for com- from community banks all over the country, and they were part of a large coalition. That's what the special interest was designed to look like. Rural hospitals that come together, there is a rural hospital association, but even beyond that, rural hospitals that come together, if, you, if, if members of Congress that represent rural hospitals formed a rural hospital caucus, you can see Republicans and Democrats come together on issues like this. This is not a red or blue issue. We've seen this stuff right. happen before, right, on sugar. When they wanted to increase taxes on sugar, um, Senator Toomey, a conservative senator from Pennsylvania, and Senator Shaheen, a Democrat from New Hampshire, they came together because this was a big deal for their states. Um, On the NCAA, my former boss, Congressman Charlie Dent, a Penn State grad, and Congresswoman Bathey, who went to that unnamed school in Columbus, Ohio, uh, they came together (laughs) and and they, they worked on something because this was something that cut across parties and it spoke to people in those locales. I think that's the target, that's how we have to move forward with rural healthcare. If people, CEOs and presidents of rural healthcare, uh, rural hospitals got together across the country, uh, we might not agree on everything, but we agree on the larger goal. If they got together, formed the caucus, formed a special interest and began pressing, you can press on Washington, you can press on your state capitals, um, you get your legislators that represent you together into a caucus, that's where ideas begin to roll. That's where change begins to happen, and it's step by step. Rachel, you talked about piecemeal last time. We have mm-hmm. to get past this idea that the progress is the enemy of the pure. It's not. We we do this step by step. We're not going to build Rome in, in one day. Uh, there's a French saying that says, you know, it's it's the bird doesn't build its nest overnight, right? It's, it's step by step that bird builds its nest, and the same the same approach is true when it comes to rural health hospitals and rural healthcare. Uh, I'm a firm believer that it can be done uh but it's a, it's a matter of connecting the pieces
1: what an enlightening and encouraging conversation today with Samuel Chen principal director of the little group we want to appreciate you for all the hard work that you have done. It sounds like you are uh, doing phenomenal things uh, in, in the political spectrum, and I want to thank you for your involvement specifically uh, in healthcare care policy. Uh, that is very critical. And then a focus uh, on rural health, it couldn't get any better than that. So thank you for joining us today, Samuel. We've appreciated our time with you.
2: Uh, President Hersh, Rachel, thank you for what you guys do, uh, you know, every day, and especially in the middle of this pandemic. You guys are the real healthcare heroes, and and all of us are deeply grateful.
1: And now for our favorite part of the show, the voice of the patient.
3: When Caroline was twelve and a half weeks pregnant with her first child, she started to experience severe cramping in her lower left abdomen. At first, she ignored it, thinking that it was a natural part of pregnancy. But soon, the pain got so bad that her husband took her to the ER at Hillsdale Hospital. After doing an ultrasound, it was quickly discovered that there was no blood flow going into her left ovary. Dr. Bediaco, the OB on call, knew that Caroline needed surgery right away to take out the left ovary, or else blood clots would flow to her lungs or the rest of her body she went into emergency surgery that same night. Four days after the surgery, Caroline was having the same cramping, but on the other side of her abdomen, and it was very unclear as to why. Everything looked normal on the CT scan. But Dr. Sinisco, Caroline's OB, was determined to figure out what was wrong. He performed a diagnostic surgery on her, and what he found was very rare. Caroline's right ovary was twisted and displaced. Dr. Sinisco was able to save the ovary and thus save the baby and Caroline's ability to carry children in the future. One of the many incredible aspects of Caroline's story is that just enough of her placenta had formed in those 12 weeks of being
0: pregnant to help save the baby. Hearing from our patients and their families and and learning their stories and knowing uh, how directly and how significantly the care that we provide is impacting their lives, it's really powerful. And I think it's a really valuable part of what we do here on Rural Health Rising is making sure that ultimately all of these conversations come back to the patient.
1: Before we close, Sam, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. Uh, we want to know, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life?
2: You know, one of the great things about politics, especially on the campaign, is you get to, to see America up close. And it's really, I tell people, politics, public service does not begin in Washington, D.C. Uh, mm-hmm. It begins in communities all over, all over the country. In fact, uh, one of my old bosses would say that when, Communities rise; everybody rises together, and uh, so that is getting to go to major urban cities and getting to to be in the country and in rural areas, visiting you know diners in whether uh, rural areas or suburbia, and uh, so it's been a lot of fun. And and probably I, I would say the most embarrassing experience for me is uh, colleagues of mine, a longtime colleagues of mine, in the political arena uh, will tell you that I, I am a bit of a wine snob and uh, they will stop you and, and share, how much time do you have? And they it'll just go story after story after story. <laughs> um, so one time we were out in the rural area and uh, it was so bad that the GPS could, I didn't book the hotel, so I was a, a advisor to a government at this point. And the, I did not book the hotel and someone else on our, our team booked it. And, uh, I have the address and my GPS, it's so rural that my GPS doesn't know where this place is. Right. Oh no. And so it just says, you know, you make a right turn and then drive. <laughs> and, and <that's> flat <laughs> direction. So I, I don't know. Like, I be, okay. And, and make a right turn. And I drive, we get to this little hotel. It was so backwoods that as I was walking down the hallway, someone had taken a takeout box punched the hole in it, hung it on their door, and said, do not disturb. (laughs) That was was their do not disturb tag. So we find out that this hotel has a pool and a bar. And I'm thinking, this is like four seasons off the beaten path. Right no, no, the pool was the bar, right? It was an exact same place. (laughs) And uh, so we go down, and that should have been sign number one. I'm walking to a really humid pool room and uh, and there's like this bar by the side like a makeshift bar that should have been sign number one that you don't order wine in a place like this and, oh, no. and uh my my colleague orders a miller light because that's the only thing he drinks because he has no taste and uh, they <laughs> asked me what i want and uh i said what well, what wines do you have sign number two should have been when the bartender said red and white uh, That's my tell That this is not uh, yellow tail. <laughs> and so uh, I said, "Well, what red and what whites? And she gives me a blank stare and says, "Red and white." And uh, so I order a glass of each, right? And biggest mistake of my life. I mean, the white tasted like rubber cement, um, and the red—I don't even know what the red tasted like. I mean, I didn't finish either drink. Um, the other tell should have been that like glasses of wine were two dollars. Um, which should have also been a tell that this was yeah. probably not, uh, not anything I was used to. Um, but my colleagues to this day would joke about the time that, that Sam Chen would decide to order wine from this Podunk hotel out in the middle of a very, very rural area.
1: Oh, that and is thought funny. he
2: was going to get something uh, legitimate. So that was probably <laughs> the most embarrassing rural <laughs> moment, but I, I gotta be honest. I love, uh, I, I love getting to just drive through, what we do drive throughs in through rural America in rural Pennsylvania, Ohio, elsewhere I've worked, um, just getting the drive through and appreciate what really the, the, yeah, the, the creation that we've been blessed with and realizing that the people who work here um, often get forgotten in the larger political discourse, but they are the backbone of this country. And so I, again, deeply appreciate what both of you do um, to provide healthcare for them and, and also to give them a voice.
1: Thank you again for joining us today, Sam. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll kick off a new five-part series on our hospital pillars, the focus areas that serve as our foundational support of everything that we do. So be sure to tune in.
0: And as a reminder, we are collecting patient testimonials to be featured during our Voice of the Patient segment. If you have an experience to share about the positive impact you or your loved one has had as a patient at a rural hospital or healthcare provider, call our direct voicemail line at 269-447 1265 or email us at marketing at hillsdale and share your story. You just might be featured on a future episode of rural health rising.
1: And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five star review on Apple podcast and tell others why they should listen to your feedback helps more listeners find rural health rising. So until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a
0: production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Sam Chen, Principal Director of The Little Group. For more interviews like this and more information or to share your patient or family testimonial with us, visit ruralhealthrising.com.